Welcome, and thank you for viewing our weekly sermon. I'm Pastor Malone, and I pray this message be a blessing to you and help you grow closer to Jesus. If you'd like to know more about having a personal relationship with Jesus or to connect with us as a church, please visit westacres.org. Thanks again, and God bless. And if you don't have a Bible, I want to encourage you to use the Bible that's in, in the pew in front of you. I know we have the words on the screen, but there's just something about having God's Word in our hands. So if you are using a pew Bible, that's page 866. And if you don't have a Bible at all, that is our gift to you today. You take that and you take it home and read it, and it will change your life. But once you found your place, Acts chapter 13, looking at verses 1 through 12 today, starting a new section, please stand with me as we show respect to God's Word. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaen, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So, being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. And when they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. And they had John, that being John Mark, to assist them. And when they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of, the word of God. But Elamus, the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now, behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Let us pray. Father, I pray that that be what takes place here today. I pray that your people, those who have come to worship this morning, will be astonished at your word. They won't be astonished at me. Father, I pray that you will hide me behind your cross. Lord, I pray that folks will hear from you today. Lord, I pray that you will change hearts. I pray that you will encourage us. You will convict us. You will move us to be the servants. Lord, the disciples you have called us to be. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. 
As I've already mentioned, chapter 13 begins a new series, a new section in the book of Acts. It is here in chapter 13 we see a shift in focus. Uh, the, the book Luke is no longer going to focus on Peter, but he's going to start focusing on Paul. It's also, in chapter 13, we see the church expanding even more. They're going to go beyond Israel and start going to the nations, just as Jesus had commanded. That's why I've titled this next section of our series, The Church on Mission. We've seen the church born. We've seen the church grow and scatter. But now here in Acts chapter 13 and beyond, we are going to see the church on mission. And just to let you know as a time reference, chapter 13 of Acts takes place 15 years after the day of Pentecost. I know we've been in the book of Acts since January, but folks, 15 years have transpired since we began this journey. 15 years since the day of Pentecost, 15 years since Saul was on the road to Damascus and was converted by the Lord Jesus Christ. With that being said, chapter 13, Paul, Saul, who's also Paul, by the way, he's going to start going by that name in chapter 13. Hey, he's no longer an enemy of God. He's no longer a persecutor of the church, but he is a seasoned man of God. He is a respected and trusted leader of the church. It's in our passage today in chapter 13, we see that Paul and Barnabas are sent out on their first missionary journey. But it's not very long into their journey that they face, they come face to face with satanic opposition. When they go to witness to this certain man named Sergius, someone, or I would say something, is going to try to get in their way. That's why I've titled today's message this, The Battle for a Soul. The Battle for a Soul. For a soul. When it comes to soul winning, I want you to know this. It's not going to be peachy. It is a battle. And when we share the good news of Jesus with someone, you better believe Satan and his armies are going to try in all their power to get in the way. Newsflash. They don't want to see people get saved. They want to keep people. I don't want to say convert people. They've already got them. But they do not want to see someone coming to Christ. They do not want to see someone coming to join the other side. And that being the army of Jesus. Therefore, we must remember we are in a battle against darkness when it comes to winning souls for Christ. So, let's look at our passage today. We begin with Paul and Barnabas being sent Another word for that is being commissioned. Number one, the commission we see in verses 1 through 3. And they are at the church in Antioch. We've already learned a, a great deal about this church in Antioch. It was the first Gentile church. This is the, the place where Christians were first called Christians. That was something else we learned about Antioch. This is the first church that sends people out into the mission field. So if you're wanting to be like a church, if, if you're wanting to, to emulate a church in Scripture, the church of Antioch is a great place to start because it is a church that is mission-minded. Every church should long to be like the church in Antioch. West Acres Baptist Church should long and desire to be like the church in Antioch. I like what J.D. Greer says. 
He's the pastor of Summit Church in North Carolina. He says, when it comes to success, we do not judge our success by our seating capacity. But a church should judge their success by their sending capacity. We should be a church that is sending missionaries and pastors, workers into the harvest, left and right. I know that sounds painful. I don't want them to leave, pastor. No, you want them to leave. That is what Jesus has called us to do. Not to leave and go, you know, join another church somewhere else, even though that happens from time to time. But to go and serve the Lord. To go into the harvest. That is what we are supposed to do. The first thing we learn about this mission-minded church is that they were blessed with good leaders. God values good leadership. You show me a good church, you're going to see some good leadership. Let's look at verse 1. Now, there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers. Those are two distinct roles in the New Testament. Prophets at this time, this is before the, the New Testament has been written. Prophets were those who were uttering the words of God. They weren't always uh, foretelling something, but they were forth-telling the word of God. But a teacher was someone that would explain Scripture. That They would explain the Scriptures, the Old Testament Scriptures, and they would teach doctrine. So we see those as two distinct roles uh, but then we have a list of folks here. We have Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manan, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. In verse 1, we see some familiar names. We should already be familiar with these two guys named Barnabas and Saul. Barnabas had such a great reputation in the early church. He, he was called the son of encouragement. That was his nickname. His real name was Joseph, but he was so well known for being an encourager, the apostles started calling him Barnabas. The next person is another famous person in the book of Acts, and that is Saul of Tarsus. And we know his story. He was once an enemy of God. He was once a persecutor of the church. But God, by his amazing grace, the resurrected Lord Jesus, met Saul on that road to Damascus and knocked him off his feet. And saved him. And saved him and said, you are my chosen instrument. I'm going to use you to preach, brother. And that's what he has been doing. But then we have three other men we don't really know much about. But folks, I want you to notice. The Holy Spirit of God inspired Luke to record these names in Scripture. Always remember that when you're going through a lengthy passage, especially the Old Testament. You're just like saying all these different names. You're like, why do you want me to learn these names, God? God wanted them there for a reason, because they served a magnificent purpose for him. But here we see a man called Simeon, who was called Niger. That word Niger is Latin for black, which means that this man most likely came from the African continent. He was a man of dark skin. We also see the same thing of Lucius of Cyrene. Cyrene was from northern Africa. This lets us know that Lucius was also most likely a man of dark skin, a black man. Isn't that amazing? We're reading about the early church, and it has such a diverse makeup. So many times we feel like, oh man, we are supposed to just make the church diverse, and we're supposed to, in 2023, we're supposed to try to get everybody here. Folks, that was the way it was from the beginning. That's the way it was from day one, the early church was made up of different people, different colors, different backgrounds. We've just messed it up. We've messed it up. That's why we're trying to get back there to the early church. We also have this guy named Manan. 
He grew up alongside Herod the Tetrarch. Uh, another way of saying that is he was reared in the same household as Herod the Tetrarch. Now, who is Herod the Tetrarch? Another name for him was Herod Antipas. And what do we know about Herod Antipas? He was the one responsible for cutting off John the Baptist's head. So wait a minute. Uh, we've got a church leader who grew up with the guy that took John the Baptist's head off? That is so interesting. I want you to know this. Some of y'all can relate to this. That you can have two people to grow up in the same household, to be reared together, to grow up together in life, but they can go down two extremely different roads in life. Some of you are like, that's my household. Pastor, that's my brother, that's my sister, that's my mother, that's my father. You have one man, he went down a road and he became an enemy of God. Then you have Manan who grew up, who was a lifelong friend of Herod, who became a servant of God. What were these leaders doing? Let's look at verse 2. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Notice when the Holy Spirit calls these men. Notice when the Holy Spirit speaks to these men. It could be these, these five men in particular, or it could be the church as a whole, as a congregation. But notice when, while they were worshiping and fasting. While they were worshiping and fasting. Uh, maybe your translation says this, while they were ministering. Uh, that Greek word for worship means to minister, to serve. Uh, their worship was their ministry. Their ministry was their worship. And that made me just think about this. I'm just talking to the pastors here for a minute, for those who are in the room, for those who are going to be called into pastoral ministry one day. But I started asking this question. Why are there so many pastors that get burnt out and fade out, that don't endure to the end? And I started thinking about this. You need to pray for me. I'm kind of a rookie up here. They lose sight that their ministries worship, not just a job. Their work during the week isn't unto you, even though the church benefits from pastors. But their work should be unto God. Their ministry is worship. I've got this verse right above my, my study. It's 2 Timothy 2.15. It says, do your best to present yourself to God. Is one approved. When I study during the week, of course I want you guys to benefit from it, but I'm not here to present myself to you. I am here to present myself to God. I once heard of, and I try to think about this time to time, especially if I see some of you nodding off. I try to remember Jesus is on the front row, and I'm just like, I want to preach to you, Jesus. I want to present myself to you. I want this to be pleasing to you. I want this to be faithful to you. That is worship. You fill in the blank, whatever you're doing for the Lord, never let it become a job or a task. If you're serving with the kids in Wax Zone, you don't say to this, oh, goodness gracious, i got to serve in Wax Zone today. You should be able to say this, I'm worshiping in Wax Zone today. Some of you are like, what is Wax Zone? West Acres Kids. That's our children's ministry. Okay? Uh, but you just fill in the blank. Whatever that task is for you. Never let it become a job. Let your ministry be 
worship be unto the Lord. They were also fasting, which is connected to prayer. And the biblical definition of fasting is going without food. Not just going without food for going without food's sake, uh, but it's going without food for, for a spiritual purpose. It's getting so lost and, and compelled in your prayers that, that you don't even have the need for food, that you desire God's hand in your life. You could desire God's direction in your life. You desire God's presence in your life more than food to the point where lunch, breakfast, and dinner is just, just going to get in the way. But that's what fasting is. It's always connected to prayer. Uh, this means that God spoke to this church while they were serving Him faithfully. It also means that, that God spoke to this church while they were awaiting to hear from Him. They were longing to hear from the Holy Spirit. Folks, that is always the pattern in the Bible. If you want to be used by God, raise your hands if you want to be used by God. I don't know about you, I want to be used by God. But for you to be used by God means you are actively serving the Lord now. God doesn't want people that just talk about tomorrow. God is going to use servants that are serving today. That is always the model in Scripture. He doesn't take somebody off the shelf and dust them off and say, hey, it's time to use you. No, he takes someone that, that they're in the trenches of ministry and worship. He says, I'm going to use them because they're already serving. They already have a great track record. God uses those who are actively serving him. Therefore, get busy serving him, okay? Get busy serving him. The Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. I want you to think about this. The church in Antioch. Think about this church for a second. Who's been spending over a year with them so far? Barnabas and Saul. They've been teaching this congregation. They've been pouring into this congregation. They have been the key leaders, the key disciple makers. Wait a minute. Holy Spirit says this. I'm taking them out. I'm taking Barnabas and Saul, and I've called them. I've set them apart for a work that I have called them to. That'd be a difficult word for a church. It's difficult when you lose a pastor, right? It's difficult when you lose great servants of the Lord. Antioch was about to lose their most gifted teachers. They were about to lose their most gifted leaders. Paul and Barnabas, to be called away from Antioch, that would be like cutting off an arm and a leg. Why is that? Because they were the cream of the crop. The cream of the crop. But notice this. Notice this. I don't know if it says it in your Bible. Mine doesn't have it. The church doesn't get angry. They didn't give these leaders a hard time. They didn't give these leaders a guilt trip. Well, I don't know why you're going over there when we could have you here. They didn't do any of that. They prayed even more. They fasted even more. They laid on hands and they affirmed God's call in these men's life. They celebrated this call in their life. It made me think of, I'll never forget listening to Adrian Rogers I, that's what I love technology for. Got these brothers that have gone on to be in heaven. I can still hear them preaching. But I'll never forget some advice I heard him say in a sermon. 
this goes for any servant of the Lord, but he was speaking about pastors. He says, a pastor should be ready to pack their bags with a night's notice if God calls them somewhere. But a pastor should also be able to spend the rest of his life in one place if God calls him somewhere. But the key thing is, it's God's call. The church wasn't calling Paul and Barnabas. Paul and Barnabas didn't volunteer for this. The Holy Spirit called them. That is the key. The Holy Spirit of God called these men to be sent. And let me just say this as a disclaimer. Don't you dare think about going somewhere if you haven't been sent. God would rather have you stay here and be unsent than go somewhere when he never meant to send you. Because <laughs> it's just a disaster if you go somewhere and you're not supposed to be there. Let's look at verse 3. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. The church laying hands on them was not bestowing the Holy Spirit on these guys. These guys already had the Holy Spirit. They were filled with the Holy Spirit. The, the church laying hands on them wasn't ordaining them for ministry. Hello, Paul and Barnabas had been leading in ministry all up to this time. But what does this mean? What does the laying on of hands signify? It means this. It signifies identification, confirmation, and unity in the upcoming mission of one who is sent. That's why we do that when we have a mission trip here. We come and pray over them. We lay hands on them. It's just it's signifying that, hey, we are affirming God's call and the work that he's going to do through your hands. It's a beautiful thing. So as these men were commissioned, uh, they're, they're hitting the mission field, ground running. We're going to see that it's not going to take long for them to face opposition. Not just any opposition, but satanic opposition. So the next section, the next heading is called the confrontation. Look at verse 4. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, which was the closest port to Cyprus. And from there they sailed to Cyprus. And when they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. And they had John to assist them. The Holy Spirit calls these men, leads them to Cyprus. And this is significant, because what, what do we know about Cyprus so far? Cyprus was the home of Barnabas. Barnabas knew how to navigate through this place. Barnabas knew all the ups and downs of this place. He knew every nook and cranny. He knew everything there was to know about Cyprus. So it's amazing that God leads these men to this island called Cyprus. And what do they do? They hit the ground running. They hit the ground running. What was their ministry? Was it humanitarian work? Was it trying to gather all the clean water in the world? Was it trying to do this? Was it trying to do that? And let me just say this. Those are great things, and the church can definitely do those things. But I want you to notice what the ministry of Paul and Barnabas was. It was preaching the word of God. Amen. Preaching the word of God. They were going in the synagogues, and the synagogues was a, a gathering place for Jews. It's a lot like a, what you would picture a church being for the church, a place to hear the teaching of Scripture. This was a common practice for Saul and Barnabas. They would go into a town, they would start with the synagogues. One, because they, they themselves were, were Jews, Hellenistic Jews, and they were able to go in there and teach the Scriptures, which Paul was just magnificently trained to do. 
But they would start with the Jews first, then make their way to the Gentiles. Scripture teaches on that, right? Salvation is for the Jew first, then the Gentiles. That was the order it came in Scripture. But I want you to think about this. If Paul and Barnabas didn't start with the Jews, if they went to Cyprus and started with the Gentiles, which had a great Jewish population, by the way, do you think the Jews would want to hear anything they have to say? No. Uh, they would say, we don't have anything to do with them. They're just messing with Gentiles. No, they had a great strategy. They started with the Jews first, then they worked their way out with the Gentiles. A very good strategy. Uh, verse 5 shows us they have a helper with them. That's John, not the Apostle John, but John Mark. And John Mark is the cousin of Barnabas. We're going to see him come back into the story a little later on, verse 13. But John Mark would go on to write the gospel of Mark, uh, which he would use the eyewitness testimony of the Apostle Peter. So it's amazing, I mean, the, the stories John Mark probably had, being a companion not only of Paul, but of Peter. Look at verses 6 through 8. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Barjesus. He was with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elamus, the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. As these men make their way through the island, just preaching all over Cyprus, they finally come to this place called Paphos, and they are encountered with opposition. They, they are encountered with this magician. It isn't just somebody you would invite to a, a little kid's birthday party, uh, but this was the same kind of magician as the Magi that we see uh, earlier when Jesus was born, those men that came to, to see the star and to see the king of the Jews. They were wise men. So we can't just discredit from that that he's a bad guy, but the next phrase is really what puts him in a, in a pickle. He was a false prophet. He was a Jewish false prophet. And his name is Bar-Jesus. Bar-Jesus meaning son. Bar, son of Jesus. Son of Jesus, son of Joshua, son of salvation. That's what his name means. Son of salvation. What we learn from this story is this. This guy was no son of salvation. In fact, he tried to get in the way of salvation. He tries to get in the way of this man's salvation name, Sergius. Uh, the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, he had heard about Barnabas and Saul, and he wanted to hear about their teaching. And what would that mean? That means they want to hear about Jesus. He wants to hear about Jesus. And the text says he was an intelligent man. This means he was cultured. He was educated. He came from nobility. Uh, here's a word on proconsuls to help us understand this role. A proconsul usually reported directly to those in the Senate who endowed him with the absolute military and judicial power over a province. They usually served a limited term as part of their political climb up the ranks. In other words, Sergius Paulus was a high-ranking official in the Roman government. So this is why Bar-Jesus, this is why this, this wise man, this is why this false Jewish prophet is so bothered that Paul and Barnabas are coming onto the scene. Because if they come into the scene, guess what happens to Bar-Jesus? One thing, 
the truth is going to come out about Bar-Jesus. But a second thing, Bar-Jesus wants to be close. He wants to be in prime position. He wants to be the influencer over Sergius Paulus. He wants to have this, this in relationship with the pro-council. But as our text reveals, this man was not just being selfish. He was not just having an ego saying, well, they're going to get in the way. But we see that this man was actually an agent of evil. An agent of evil. Why do I mean that? He was an agent of evil because he was getting in the way of a man getting saved. Now, I want you to think about this. Anytime somebody tries to get in somebody's way of being saved, they're an agent of evil. They are an agent of the devil. This is where we see uh, Bar-Jesus, also known as Elamus. That, that's his other name in Scripture. These aren't two different people. But Elamus means sorcerer. This is why we see him getting in the way, because he's an agent of evil. And this is where the battle for this man's soul unfolds. This is where the battle for his soul unfolds. As Bar-Jesus fights to prevent salvation, Saul and Barnabas aren't like, apparently we're not welcome here. Let's just go somewhere else. No. It's, it's, as Bar-Jesus is trying to get in the way, they have no idea who they are messing with. They have no idea who's in the room right now. You got the Apostle Paul. You got Saul, which his name's going to be Paul in a little bit. He's going to start going by his Roman name. Saul doesn't hold back. Saul, he's the most confrontational person we could possibly have in this situation. If you thought Bar-Jesus was confrontational, wait till you hear the words of Paul. This is one of the strongest rebukes in Scripture, and it's not a rebuke towards a man, but it's a rebuke towards demonic forces. Look at verses 9 through 10. But Saul, who was called Paul, it's the first time we see that happen. And why is that? Because Saul was his Jewish name and Paul was his Roman name. Great name to start using when you're in Gentile territory. But it says, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy. Will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? It's interesting, this rebuke that comes towards this man. His name is Bar-Jesus, son of salvation, son of Jesus. But the apostle Paul, he calls him son of the devil. You are son of the devil. He's not just rebuking a man, but he's rebuking demonic power. Saul recognizes he's not talking to flesh and blood. And Saul, the apostle Paul, he's going to be the one that later would write to the Ephesians in chapter 6. And he would say this, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Satan did not want Sergius to be saved. Satan did not want Christ getting Sergius Paulus. Why is that? Why is that? Well, what is the guy's job? He's, he's a man of influence. He's a man of status. He is a, a Roman official of great stature. Satan doesn't want this great leader Becoming a follower of Jesus. 
He doesn't want this, this great leader, Sergius Paulus, to be saved. He doesn't want to see him being one for Christ. And that should make you think this. The next time you turn your TVs on and you're just, your stomach is sick because of these, these politicians. And, 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 and I feel you sometimes. You're just like, man, the devil must really have a hold on these people. He does. He does. So what do you need to do for these people? You don't need to pray, Lord, please, just, oh, goodness, please be with this next election. Yes, you need to do that. You need to be praying for that person's heart. You need to be praying for their soul. You need to be praying that God would open their eyes to their need for Jesus. You need to be praying that they will stand for the Lord. Be praying for them. John MacArthur says this. He says it really good. It is well to remember the lesson of these verses. Leading someone to Christ is not merely an academic exercise. Leading someone to Christ is not making a successful sales pitch. Rather, it involves an all-out war against the forces of hell. Saul and Barnabas battled Bar-Jesus for the soul of Sergius Paulus. I want you to remember that the next time it comes to sharing Jesus with someone, which should be today, by the way, the next time you go to share Jesus with your loved ones, with your family, your friends, your neighbor, your coworker, those people in your sphere of influence, that person the Lord leads you to share the gospel with, I want you to remember this. You will face satanic opposition. You will face satanic opposition. Evil is fighting to keep that person's soul. Keep? What do you mean, Pastor Keep? They are, you mean they already have it? Yes, they have it. When a person is in sin, which is all of creation, they are dead in their trespasses, and they belong to the devil. That is who our Father is before we come to Jesus. And Jesus even said that in the New Testament, speaking to a bunch of lost people. He's like, your dad's the devil. But when a person is being... Witness to, the devil is going to do everything in his power to keep that person from getting saved. But what do we know from this passage? We are supposed to fight back. We are supposed not just to throw in the towel, well, I guess they're going to hell. No, you are supposed to, to be just like the Apostle Paul. You're supposed to, to be fervent. You're supposed to be earnest in prayer, praying for that person. We learned last week, earnest prayer is straining yourself, stretching yourself. Be honest with yourself. When's the last time you prayed for the lost people in your life? But can you answer this? Was it really earnest prayer? We're to pray for those people, but we're to pray for ourselves. I'll, share you, I'll, I'll just share this. When it comes to witnessing... This is just your pastor speaking. I wouldn't recommend going around calling people son of the devil. Okay? Unless the Holy Spirit leads you to do it. Okay? Because oh, that's clearly what happened here today. Paul was filled with the Holy Spirit. That was the Holy Spirit responding to, Paul, to bar Jesus. Paul was filled with the Holy Spirit. What does being filled with the Holy Spirit mean? Being filled with the Holy Spirit. One thing is this. When you get saved... The Holy Spirit comes to dwell within you. You don't just receive more and more of the Spirit as you go. You receive all of the Spirit as you go. But in our English uh, way of saying it, many of y'all kind of view it being like a gas tank. I just need more of that Spirit today, Lord. No. Being filled with the Spirit is not getting more of the Spirit. It's the Spirit getting more of you. 
the Spirit getting more of you. And, and being filled with the Spirit simply means this. I, I want you to write this down if you're taking notes. Walking in obedience to the will of God. That is what being filled with the Spirit is. And you know what's great? We know what the will of God is. The will of God is His Word. So when you pray, Lord, fill me with your Spirit, another way of saying it is this, Lord, help me be obedient to your Word. Help me be obedient. Help me forsake the sin in my life. Help me walk in holiness. Help me walk in obedience. Help me walk when those times that, you're, that your Spirit is, is leading me to do something. Help me to be faithful and obedient to those things. That is what Paul and Barnabas were doing. They were filled with the Holy Spirit. That's why Paul in this moment could look at this guy eye to eye and say, you are the son of the devil. He was filled with the Holy Spirit. We are to be filled with the Spirit. After his rebuke, the Spirit-filled Paul announces judgment on Bar-Jesus. And Paul is an apostle, remember? We've already seen this happen before in Scripture. But look in verse 11. And now, behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Just as the Spirit of God punished those two people named Ananias and Sapphira earlier in the book of Acts, the Spirit of God brings immediate punishment to Bar-Jesus. The Spirit of God immediately brings punishment to him. But I want you to know this. He showed some grace to Bar-Jesus. He showed some grace because he didn't take his life. But he takes his sight. And this is a temporary judgment. This, this isn't a permanent judgment. But this man went around being blind for a season. And that blindness, that physical blindness, really represented that spiritual blindness. He went around, he was desperate for someone to lead him away. We don't know how the story ends for this guy. We don't know whatever happened to bar Jesus. But here's something I think about, that when God brings judgment on us like that, especially when it doesn't take our life away, it's an act of grace. It's an act of grace to get our attention. And man, he had to have his attention taken because he had his sight taken. So I like to imagine maybe one day... We'll learn if this guy ever came to repentance. We'll learn if this guy ever came to know the real Jesus. We've seen the confrontation with evil. We've seen Paul call a guy, you son of a devil. Y'all want to end on a happy note today? The story ends with somebody getting saved. Point number three, the conversion. The conversion. Then the proconsul believed... When he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Sergius, that's, that's what I'm just going to call him, Sergius. He witnessed all that had taken place. After all, he was at the center of this whole ordeal. You had darkness pulling on Sergius, but you had God's servants pulling on him. It was like tug of war, tug of war. You had the devil pulling this way, but you had God pulling the other way. And guess who won the match? God. God. So what was the result? Sergius came to faith. He believed in the preaching of Barnabas and Paul. 
The tragedy of Bar-Jesus certainly had an effect on him. He witnessed all that had happened. But folks, I want you to know this. This man didn't get saved for witnessing a miracle. The man got saved because he believed in the Word of God. I love how the story ends. He was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. And what did this teaching consist of? Teaching, it consisted of this. The good news of salvation that is found only in Jesus Christ. Sergius learned that Jesus came to save him. Sergius learned that Jesus died on a cross, was buried for three days. And he also learned, even when he had that tomb guarded by soldiers, that Jesus rose again. And why did he do those things? To save Sergius, to save you, and to save me from our sin and from an eternity in hell. After you hear that news for the first time, you should be astonished. You should be astonished. Without the gospel teaching of Christ, there is no salvation. Just, he would not be saved just looking at a man go blind. He could only be saved by the word of God. Sergius Paulus was an intelligent man. He was a seeker. He summoned Barnabas and Saul. This means he was looking for answers in life. He was looking for fulfillment in life. Here is the man that is on top. He is the top dog in Cyprus. He is intelligent. He has riches. He has education. He has all these different things. Yet something is still missing. And it's Jesus. It's Jesus. The, the only thing that could bring him fulfillment in life was Jesus Christ. So I love this story. That's why it's called the battle for a soul. What's the main point of Acts chapter 13 verses 1 through 12? Yeah, it's the first missionary journey of Barnabas and Saul. But if you read closely, it's the journey for a man's soul. It's the battle for a man named Sergius. And I am so grateful he gets saved. The story starts, he has this guy named Bar-Jesus in his life who leads him astray. But praise be to God, the story ends with him knowing the Jesus who shows him the way, because Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. There's, as we close this section today, I want to just share some, some practical applications. For, the, for those of you who have been sitting here going, so what? So what? Here's the so what, okay? Number one, there is a battle for souls. There is a battle for souls. When we live on a mission for Christ, we will face opposition. So what does that mean you need to be doing every day? You need to wake up and be ready for battle. Number two, we are to be spirit-filled in our witness. Some of you are just saying, Pastor, I'm just not good at this witnessing thing because you're not spirit-filled. You're not living in obedience. You're trying to have your cake and eat it too, saying, I'm going to just do whatever I want to do over here. Yeah, I'll do a little uh, scripture sharing over here. That's why you stink at it, because you're not living in obedience to God. So we should be spirit-filled. I love what Acts 1.8 says. You will receive power. You know what the power is? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. You will receive power. And what are you supposed to use with that power? Be His witnesses. So we are to be spirit-filled in our witness. And finally, number three, and we need to know this as Americans. We need to know this in 2023. We need to know this in this culture that we're living in. We are to stay faithful to God's word in our witness. What do I mean by that? Don't add to it. Don't take away from it. 
Don't add your own little flavor to it to, to say, oh, I just, I just got to make it more palatable for these people. No, you remain faithful and dependent in being a messenger of God's word when you're going to that lost person. Because it's not you that's going to save that person. It's the word of God. So you are to be faithful and dependent on the inspired, inerrant, and infallible word of God. Don't compromise in that area. Remember these things as you go on mission for Jesus this week, this afternoon. Let's pray.